You're listening to Knowing Faith, a podcast of Training the Church. This is Kyle Worley, and I'm joined by my co-hosts, Jen Wilkin and JT English. And on today's episode, we introduce 1st and 2nd Samuel, and we ask... Why should I not skip these in my Bible reading plan? I don't know if you're like me, but when you get to certain books in the Bible in your Bible reading plan, it becomes really easy to think, you know what, I'm just gonna, these are the days this week I'm gonna miss. But First and Second Samuel really are a treasure trove for understanding not just Israel's history, but our history and the role of the Davidic kingship and the monarchy in the life of Israel and in the story of scripture. We hope you enjoy the discussion. Okay, so I've been rewatching Parks and Rec. I have too. I've oh, really? never watched it. Oh my god! But I hear I've watched The Office probably thirteen times. You need to get you some Parks and Rec. Everybody's told me that. I believe you. I just feel like I'm cheating on. The it's Office. more optimistic oh, than Parks and yeah. Rec. Like, like when I leave an episode of The Office, I would have laughed, but I would also feel like sarcasm and cynicism had been well cultivated. Mm-hmm. Whereas Parks and Rec cultivates a little bit more of an optimism. Is it true that it gets better? Because I did try one or two episodes. Yeah, like, you got to get past a few years ago. I feel like when it's when Rob Lowe and the other guy show up. Ben Rob Lowe's and, on it. Yeah, Ben and who? Who's the? Okay, I'm well, in. Oh, I know what I'm doing tonight. All right, it's good. Okay, I believe you. I, I believe you. It's really good, and you're a lot like Tom Haverford. He's oh. one of the characters. I feel like I'm being... <laughs> I thought you were going to say John Ralphio for a second. Oh, so that was gosh. Good. That would have been See, great. Jay, this is a, I love when JT doesn't know what's you going on in you and I do. No, no. Tom, so Tom Haverford is a very mature character on the show. He makes responsible decisions. Tiki, tiki, farm, farm. I'm watching the entire... Jay and I for a long time have bonded over our mutual affection for the little Sebastian story arc. Yes. Which is just... Mm-hmm. Another thing that you'll... I'm watching enjoy. all of them by the end of the week, and we're having a conversation about it. I well, believe you are equal to the task. I want, I, 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 when it's done, I want you to come back in, and we're going to talk about who is who. We can do that. Okay. Great. All right. You have homework. You have done. homework. Mm-hmm. I'm looking forward to it. Okay. Well, Parks and Rec. Last, last year, we did West Wing, right? Because we talked about West Wing characters. We so did. I feel like we need to yes. now switch over and go, okay, who are our mm-hmm. Parks and Rec uh, corresponding character. So mm-hmm. get on that. I'll, mm-hmm. I'll be on it. Actually, it's billable hours, so you can do it during work. There's no doubt. I've already <laughs> I've secured approval. <laughs> or I can take ministry time off for it. Yeah, <laughs> just some, take some <laughs> Okay, well, so uh, in the early years of my faith, when I got to First and Second Samuel, all the historical books, they I would typically just skip over them because it seemed like, okay, here we go. Blood, names, numbers, demographic information, uh, like, hey, we built this building, we're in this place. I just felt like I didn't understand why I should care about these books at all. Like what was going on. Um, part of that is because I didn't know the full biblical story, right? Like I, di- I didn't have like the meta narrative. Mm-hmm. And so I wasn't situating first and second Samuel in this larger story. I just was getting to it and trying to like make sense of it on its own terms, like reading, you know, book two of a three book series. I mean, like, well, this doesn't make any sense. Right. Right. So, when we get to First and Second Samuel, what has been happening? Like, when we get to this story of the rise and fall of Saul and David, mm-hmm. why should we care? What is the story so far by the time we get here? 
Well, in some sense, it's just another creation narrative, right? Because you've got, uh, if you think about where you are in the story of the nation of Israel, the story of the book of Exodus is them coming out of Egypt and they form into this nation. But up until the point that we step into the book of Samuel, they have been ruled um, sort of in a tribal way um, by judges. And if you've read the book of Judges, man, it puts every Spanish soap opera out there to shame (laughs) in terms of plot lines. And I mean, the book of Judges is an absolute downward spiraling Mm -hmm. disaster, um, which is meant to build the proper tension that we need to understand why we find ourselves in the story of Samuel, which Mm -hmm. is um, the people asking God for a king like the nations, Mm -hmm. like like other people have. And so then Samuel, the book of Samuel, uh, first and second Samuel, um, attempts to give you um, an understanding of why it mattered that they had a king what their motives were for wanting that kind of a ruler set in contrast to what God desires for his people. Yeah. And um, in, the, in the overall story of scripture, in the training program, we often talk about dwelling dominion and dynasty. Mm-hmm. Talk a little bit about that, JT, and how First and Second Samuel kind of come in as a part of that big story. Yeah, so those terms, uh, dwelling dominion and dynasty, we're basically trying to use those categories to give a, a basic definition of what the kingdom of God is, that God is... Or, or really what the storyline of in, of all of the Bible is, that God uh, intends to dwell with his people. He intends that through his people to take dominion over the entire earth, starting in the Garden of Eden, Garden of Eden and extending his glory to every single part of his creation. And he's going to do it through his people, who are a dynasty of image bearers, mm-hmm. Adam and Eve, the original dynasty, and ultimately Jesus, the second Adam, as the king who will do this. And so specifically in First and Second Samuel, these themes are abundantly present. Specifically, when you think about dynasty, I mean, Jen just already hit on this, is Israel's asking for a king. One of the main questions that comes up in the training program is, is asking for a king right wrong, wrong because yeah. God is king. Right. And the way I answer that question is it's not wrong to ask for a king because Moses is promised that the kings and kings and queens will come from you. Mm-hmm. The problem with that, with what their request is, is it's not asking for a king. It's asking for a specific kind of king, right. a king like the other nations. Mm-hmm. And it's not bad to want to be in the land because God told them. That's exactly right. You're going to have the land. This is your land. Mm-hmm. So that's the dominion element right. that you ha- you're going to have a king. He's going to reign and rule over you in this place, in this land. You're going to be a people who are set apart, who who embody what it's like to walk in a relationship with God, extending blessing to all nations. And specifically, this is going to happen uh, as I dwell with you. And so, you know, you have the Garden of Eden where they're dwelling in the presence of God. They're sent into exile. So not only do we have the systematic theology category of the fall or Mm -hmm. depravity, but you also have exile. That's kind of the biblical theology category. And here you have God dwelling. Well, you have you have uh, him dwelling with his people in the ark, but because of their disobedience, he actually sends himself into exile, yeah. into Philistia. But then eventually uh, in the storyline, they rebuild a temple that God is dwelling with his people. So you have these categories of dwelling, dominion, and dynasty really on every single page of First and Second Samuel. And when you're getting to First and Second Samuel, it, there are moments uh, towards... Well, they're more pronounced in in the in first second Kings, but in the historical books, there are these moments where it looks like maybe all of the promises that God uh, that God has given to His people are going to come true. Mm-hmm. Like it looks like they're going to be in the it, land. It's like the kingdom is fulfilled. They're going to have a king on the throne, and mm-hmm. His presence is going to be in the midst of them. They're like these little windows, slivers of time, where it's like, oh, everything has come true. Here we are. We've got the land, uh, and we've got a king. The king is on the throne. The king mm-hmm. is on the throne, um, and then they fall into what is the recurring pattern. 
of God's people throughout all of scripture. And then we know this personally in our own lives as well, which is that we fall into sin. Right. And uh, for Israel, what this looks like most of the time in the Old Testament is they slip into conforming and beginning to behave like the other nations. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. Saul does it. David does it. Uh, David's son Solomon does it. Solomon's sons do it. Like right. that's the progression, and that's how it was with Israel and Egypt. It's how it was with them in the conquest. It's just this is part of Israel. So it's it's the story of Adam and Eve in the garden. That's right. Of looking around and conforming to the the essentially the deception mm-hmm. of the serpent mm-hmm. in the midst of this place of God's presence. That's right. And so there are there are that's a big. Uh, big picture approach to the story and we have to have that as we enter in and when we don't it feels like wow why am I actually supposed to care about this but I think and this wasn't in the notes so now we're we're throwing out a question that's off script okay that's never happened before it always happens (laughs) but I think there there could be other complicating factors that make books like the historical books in scripture particularly hard for readers to engage with yeah so let's talk about what some of those might be right because because these are the things we have to troubleshoot when we're trying to teach right. a book like First and Second Samuel. What are some of the things you anticipate as you teach First and Second Samuel over this year that you're like, okay, th- I know they most people don't know this mm-hmm. or don't have this apparatus, and we're gonna have to build it for them to understand First and Second Samuel. Well, first of all, just what you've said at least twice, and if you were saying it a third time, I was probably gonna have to smack you in the head. Is okay the, hey, why does this matter to me? So you have to give them a reason to care, right? Right. And uh, I think the disconnect for many people is we don't understand that these stories are our story. Mm -hmm. So connecting, they're not Israel's story. I mean, they are, but they're also our story. Mm -hmm. And so giving them uh, clear connection points between why this matters to me today, but also why did it matter then? What did the original audience hear from this that they really needed to hear? And how, how does that hit me? Uh, or us to be probably even closer to a good application is because, you know, what does this mean for the church today? Right. Uh, and then, you know, the big obstacle that you always hit, which is the one that I love to run toward when you're going to the Old Testament, is helping people understand genre. Yeah. And um, just what does it mean to be in a, a historical narrative that was written 3,000 years ago? What are the rules that the um, human author was abiding by? Yeah. And so this is where, you know, I, I do lack a, um, a seminary degree, but I do have an English degree. And, and it can really help um, to walk into a text like this and be reminded, um, whereas many of us have been told, oh, we're supposed to read the Bible literally, like everything we read is supposed to just be obvious and apparent to us, you know, at, at a face value, that what we're actually called to do is read the Bible literately. So according to the rules that the author of the book would have been abiding by as they wrote it and looking for the purpose that he had in mind. And so um, we're always inviting people into um, a space, that a world that they are not as familiar with familiar with as they could be. Um, Not as like a, I never want it to sound like, hey, there's like this secret decoder ring to the book of first and second Samuel. If you just understood everything that was going on at the time, um, there is a sense at which anyone can read the book and draw uh, help from it, but also um, placing it just even within the context of the other books of the Old Testament and understanding how these books were written using terminology or imagery or even formulating the way you talk about a character. And they're not fictional characters, right? David actually lived. Um, But as is the case with 
any story that is told, we're choosing which parts to include and which parts to leave out. He's presented to us in a particular way for a purpose. I think, I think something else that's really important here too, and Jen, I, I know that you would, you would say this as well. You cannot understand the depths of the New Testament until you're oh, deeply yeah. familiar with the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. And so I had a professor in seminary who used to say, I love the New Testament. It reminds me so much of the Old Testament. <laughs> and I didn't get it when he first said it because I knew nothing about my Bible. But the more I became a reader of my Bible, the more I saw it. I mean, you see Matthew's opening up his gospel by saying what? This is Jesus, mm-hmm. the son of David, the son of Abraham. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, you cannot understand mm-hmm. what Matthew's claiming there unless you spend some time in Second Samuel 7. Right. Well, Absolutely. and the New Testament authors are skimming the tops of these concepts that that are deeply discussed in the Old Testament. They're giving you just a snapshot of something because they're assuming... Assuming familiarity. ...that you have familiarity. The way I like to illustrate it is... So my favorite movie is Forrest Gump. And um, I didn't know that. Oh, I love it. And so the kids will be like watching, and I'll walk in at the end, and I'll be like, it's cool. I won't cry this time. I can watch the last 10 minutes. It'll be fine. And I walked in recently on the scene where he... He's introduced to his, he meets his son for the first time. And he says, is he smart? Mm-hmm. Like, I'm going to start crying even just trying to tell yes. you. He says, is he smart? And um, and I lose it. Like, I haven't, you know, and why am I crying in that scene? Well, it's because I know the whole story, mm-hmm. right? If you've watched the beginning, then that scene packs the punch that it should. It hits you the way that it should. And many of us, by spending an excessive amount of time in the New Testament, are essentially watching the last 10 minutes of a movie, uh, hoping that we're going to feel the full weight of it or even apprehend the full weight of it, which is not possible if you haven't started at the beginning. I'm going to write that illustration down. That was a good one. I'd capture that (laughs) one. That one in the vault. Um, uh, (laughs) That was really good. um, I think all of that is so helpful. Um, I find that for people, there's also just, and we're talking around a little bit, there's like an imaginative distance between them and the world of scripture. Like, um, I went to a national park this past summer and I'd heard about the national park from a lot of people. They were like, oh, it's beautiful. Zion National Park, it's gorgeous. And this is what you should expect and all of those things. Um, But no matter how well they described it for me, when I got there, it was like, oh, wow, this Mm -hmm. is incredible. Now I kind of know what they're talking about. Mm -hmm. And it's hard sometimes when we're reading books uh, of the Bible, Old or New Testament, to enter in to just the the world Mm -hmm. um, that the text is coming from and from among. And I think one area here that kind of connects with that, but is also just a sociological thing, is that we don't have the connection to place mm-hmm. that the ancient world had, like uh, of specific places. Like we don't feel the way they feel about land. Right. Like I don't feel the way I, that, that my grandfather felt about land or about place. Like my grandfather was raised in a community, went back and then worked that farm in his retirement and died there. Mm-hmm. So there is a sense in which like he was deeply interwoven with that place place. Israel had a deep connection to this place. It was entrenched in their history. And when you're in a society like the global West, which is radically individualistic, radically mobile, Mm -hmm. and radically displaced from uh, communities of origin, like, and I'm I'm actually saying like, not like, like conceptually, I mean like actual places. Mm -hmm. Um, It's hard to understand when you get to first and second Samuel, why it matters so much that they're here. Right. That they're in this land, not any other land. They're in this land, right? Because Abraham had walked it. 
right? Because they had been promised it with Moses. Mm -hmm. Because they had gone through blood, sweat, and tears in the conquest. And now they're here. Mm -hmm. And so I feel like those are, like everything we just mentioned, are the reasons why you as a listener might find reading First and Second Samuel daunting. Mm -hmm. it's like it's hard for me to imagine. Why do they care so much about this place? Mm -hmm. I don't understand this kind of genre of literature, right? How does this story connect to my story? Those are all really complicating factors when we try to understand First and Second Samuel. But just some basic things here, Jen. Who wrote these books? When, why did they write them? What do we know about where they came from? Yeah, we don't really know. Uh, and I kind of like it when we get to a book where we don't really know because we're people who want to know stuff like that. We feel like if I don't know who wrote it, how can I trust the source and all of that? Um, but it's probably the product of multiple sources. Um, and we know, you know, approximately when it was probably written due to some context clues, some things that are mentioned, like we have David's last words. So we can assume that the book was written after David died. And then we also have some mention of the divided kingdom. So right. we can assume that probably it's written um, before the return from exile. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it's, it's roughly dated to between... 930 and 538 BC. And, you know, people hear dates like that and they panic a little, I think. Mm -hmm. There are just a handful of dates that it would be really good for people to know uh, when it comes to sort of placing themselves in the story of the Old Testament. And those are dates related to the exiles, yeah. uh, to the to the, the, the two main um, times that the people of God are carried into exile, right. two main waves uh, that that happens. So that's around 586 B.C., just generally in that area. Um, and then just some basic markers in terms of like, when did David live? So that's, right. you know, right around the thousand mark BC. Right. Uh, and so those are some of the things that we want to build out for people are the timelines. One of the things that's interesting to me about the book of um, Samuel, I keep calling it the book of Samuel because it is a book. Like it, we, we read first and second, but the reason that we have the two books is actually apparently due to the length of a scroll that it could be recorded mm -hmm. on. So it's recorded on two scrolls in order to fit it. Um, but it's really one story from, right. from start to finish. Um, but it only covers about 135 years right. of time, which is a relatively small time period when you think about the typical historical narrative in the Old Testament. Right. Uh, so these are 135 really critical years for us to take a look at. So we want to know where do they live in the timeline. Um, and we don't know right. who wrote them, but we know, this is where you say, but we we know that God inspires uh, the authors and makes sure that what needs to get in gets in. Right. And the why there is to have Israel remember their history. Right. And to, for us to remember the history of the world yeah. and our history. Yeah. And the history of the Son of God. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. And one of the things, honestly, that I'm kind of excited about this semester um, is um, maybe helping with something that I think I see as a little bit of an overcorrection within our circles in, in the church. And uh, everybody's heard uh, over and over again, probably listeners of our podcast, um, that you always want to make the story, Old Testament story, make Christ the hero of the Old of the Old Testament stories. Like, how can we look at David and say, yeah, but really Christ is the true and better David. Like, the, that's like this thing that we repeat over and over again. And I love that. That's an important muscle for us to flex. It's an important skill for us to have. But the, that's not the, where you place the period on the sentence because once we can acknowledge Christ is the true and better David, um, it is then appropriate for us to say, and how can we be like Christ? Mm. Right. So like, whereas I think there have been times where people have sort of vilified the idea of dare to be a Daniel or, mm -hmm. you know, how can I be like David in the story of David and Goliath? Well, certainly that's not the only conclusion you want to draw. 
But you do want to ask, as I see Christ in this person in the story, how then can I be like Christ as they were mirroring Christ? Yeah, that's really helpful. What bridge is God calling you to cross that the gospel might go forth among the nations? Women like Lilia Trotter, Harriet Newell, and Sarah Hall Boardman Judson have indeed crossed their own bridges to get to the lost. Discover the stories of 10 inspiring female missionaries who changed the world for Christ. 10 Women Who Changed the World is seminary president Daniel Aiken's powerful tribute to these women who fulfilled the Great Commission. May we all follow in their footsteps. 10 Women Who Changed the World is available wherever books are sold. Have you ever wondered what is God's heart towards you? In this noisy world, God's heart beats hard with love and mercy. But how can God share his heart with us when he doesn't have our attention? You're invited to spend 100 days discovering the beautiful, merciful heart of God with Overflowing Mercies, a new devotional by Craig Allen Cooper. The Lord is not ashamed of you or quick-tempered toward your faults. Each one of your weaknesses, faults, frailties, and failures does more to arouse God's love than to stir up His anger. If you could fathom in some small way how warmly God truly feels about you, the faintest grasp of His immeasurable affection would reduce you to tearful wonder and heartfelt gratitude. As God's mercies are new every single morning, overflowing mercies will continue to be a constant well of refreshing comfort, encouragement, and strength. It's perfect for personal quiet times, family and dinner table devotions, and small groups. Let this devotional help you get intentional, stay connected to God, and continue loving others. Order your copy of Overflowing Mercies, 100 Meditations on the Tender Heart of God today at moodypublishers.com or wherever great books are sold. So what are some of the major themes and figures in First and Second Samuel? One of the themes that I love exploring uh, in these books in particular is, is the, what kind of person does God use in the world mm-hmm. and what kind, of, what kind of person is worthy of emulating and following? Mm-hmm. So this is kind of, you could talk about this in image-bearing language or representative language. And so you have these characters that are set up first that are kind of contrasted against each other, Eli and Samuel mm-hmm. or Saul and David. Specifically with Saul and David, you have Israel asking for a king, but again, as we've already explored, not just any king, a king like the other nations, the kind of king that's going to bring them economic might, military might, safety from their enemies, he's going to secure their borders. He's kind of a strong man. He's somebody who's going to give them, in their mind, protection, security, and safety. And so that's the kind of king that they want. But that's not the king, the kind of king that God desires to use in the world, or mm-hmm. that God desires to have represent him. And so this is why David is brought into power. And he is certainly he's a warrior, but he's also a shepherd, a musician, a poet, somebody who is 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 in a deep relationship with God. Most biblical commentators would say it's it's likely that Saul is not familiar with the law, not familiar with the biblical text, mm-hmm. while David is meditating on it day and night. And so you just have these two pictures of of, of a kind of leadership or a kind of person. And Israel, and I think we can even go as far as saying the church, wants a lot of Saul's. We want to follow Saul. We don't want to follow David. And so one of the main themes that I think is worth exploring is why are we interested in, in, in putting our faith and trust in a Saul-like figure and not a David-like figure? Mm-hmm. And then how does that relate to our relationship with Christ? Why do we want, um, why are we interested in ex- exploiting power, yeah. strength, authority, mm-hmm. when Christ is truly the powerful one, but does so through incarnation, humility, suffering, not uh, through uh, exploiting others. Yeah.
Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. What other major themes and figures are in First and Second Samuel? Well, I think it's going to be a good opportunity to look at some women, too. Mm. We're going to see, uh, you know, I think uh, I'm going to hack this quote up, but it's basically that uh, society is judged by how it treats the ones with the least power. I really hacked that up. I can't remember what the quote is, but basically, if you want to look at the at the the people who hold the least um, ability to determine the course of their own lives and see how they fare under a particular mm-hmm. uh, rule or regime, it'll tell you kind of where things stand. And obviously, the Book of Judges paints a very um, bleak picture of what it looks like when power is corrupt for for the for the least among us. But we see that theme continue. In um, the books of First and Second Samuel, um, specifically, if you look at, I mean, even Hannah is a good example of this because you know the fact that she's childless places her in a in a she's a, she's disregarded within society as a whole if she can't produce a child. And so yep. then to do this incredible thing where she actually gives the child up after mm-hmm. the Lord gives her the very thing that marks her out as being a meaningful contributor to society. And then this child ends up in in an environment that is just toxic. Mm -hmm. I mean, Eli's house is just awful, you know, and how you see Samuel rise out of that. Um, But then as you get even further into the story, you're going to hear about um, polygamy. Mm -hmm. And and it's not ever presented to us in favorable terms in the Bible. And you're going to hear about rape and you're going to hear about um, the response to rape and and so I think those are themes particularly as I'm thinking about teaching the women's class obviously there's always a unique opportunity to not rush past what is sometimes rushed past when the when the primary goal is to focus on as is appropriate uh, David and Saul and Samuel yeah Mm -hmm. I think first second Samuel also uh, places that I typically go to point out or to try to tease out um, that there can be um, a way of approaching God mm-hmm. that looks righteous. This life with God, the life from God kind of approach of approaching God. Like essentially, when Israel is when we encounter them in First and Second Samuel, it's almost as if they've gotten everything they wanted from God. Mm-hmm. And yet, what would he find by the end of their their time there is that they actually don't want life with God. Mm-hmm. They wanted like all the things. They wanted them on their own terms and their own way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yet their great failure is that they and their kings deny life with God right? or reject life with God in favor of just taking from God these good and, and these great gifts that God gives his people and the kings. And so there's a ton to explore. And over the course of the semester, we're going to be, uh, and over the year, we're going to be doing these kind of like deep dives into like one portion. So like the next time we talk about First and Second Samuel, we'll talk about the ark in first and second Samuel. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we'll kind of just like dive into the text over the course of this year, but a few more just general questions to kind of do stage setting. I think one thing about the historical books and the wisdom literature can fall into this as well is the question on the role and voice of God, right? So God's <laughs> like, God is speaking all throughout. I like these easy questions you come up with. <laughs> right? Well, God is speaking all throughout scripture, but there are times and there are books of the Bible that really seem to be emphasizing the voice of God in certain ways. When you've come out of the Pentateuch, which has a lot of direct address from God, right? Like God saying, speaking, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, where we might say there are portions of it that while while mediated, they come through something, um, they seem to be a lot more per- like direct. Yeah. But when you get to the historical books, there's a question of like, where's God at? Like, what's he up to in this whole period, right? Like, because you may hear him sometimes through the prophets, but it's not a book of prophecy. 
So it's not just God speaking through a prophet. There are also just descriptions of events, like a lot of just descriptions and retelling of events. So the historical books feel very different than the Pentateuch and the prophets and the gospels, but their history, their narrative. Mm -hmm. So what is God up to in the historical books? It's almost like in some of those other genres, you have God's commentary on what's going on or here you don't, you have a story. We talk about this a lot in the training program as well, is that narrative is our culture's currency. He who tells the best story wins. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think our culture, whether I think that's still true, but we don't believe that to be true anymore. In other words, we think the best story is just kind of clear epistle-like literature where I can get to the conclusion as quickly as possible. But when you spend time in the imagination and kind of the world, the imaginative world of First and Second Samuel, you're shaped and formed by the text in ways that, that non-story literature can't do it. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? So you're spending time in the midst of a story, almost taking up characters and trying to understand how these, like Jen, I know you probably don't want to talk about it on the podcast yet because it's coming later, but we think about the current Me Too movement and you think about what happens with David and Bathsheba. Yeah. And uh, there's nothing, like a verse can't help you there, but a story can. Yeah. Right. Does that make sense? And so Mm -hmm. that's kind of what I'm trying to get at is these stories are meant to develop instincts in us. Right. And, and kind of reflexes in us that a simple uh, verse can't. Right. Or that a cursory reading of the text can't, right. or that a, a spot knowledge of the Old Testament can't. And I get it. We all have a spot knowledge of the Old Testament in some sense. We're all working toward understanding it better. But I always crack up when I start reading the commentaries at the beginning of a semester. And, you know, I've spent time reading the text myself, and then I'll get into the commentary, and the commentators will always say, these incredibly well-crafted stories that are just impeccably done. And, and I, half of me is like, really? I really didn't get that much from, you know, you're like, get me there. Cause I don't, right. I don't feel it when I start out, I might appreciate certain elements of it. Um, but it takes a lot of time living in these texts to start to, um, be looking for, I guess I would call it the tricks of the trade to be looking for what are the devices that they're using? What clues should I have picked up on that I missed? And we can be patient with ourselves Mm -hmm. in that. But I always love hearing someone else enthusiastic about it before I've gotten there myself because I'm like, I want to get there. Like, yeah. I don't want to stay. And, and I think that's really the challenge at the beginning of any semester that we dive into a book that is more difficult. I mean, we're going to hit some hard stuff. There are passages in First and Second Samuel that people spend a lifetime avoiding. You know, we're going to talk about uh, God's wrath mm-hmm. in, in, some, in some ways that, you know, every Christian at some point has to stare down. Uh, and we're going to talk about hard, hard things and uh, our own motives and the way that we deal with one another. Um, in love and in wrath and in neglect, and um, it takes time. And, and that's one of the things, you know, we want to spur people on to give time to this. Right. We all have discretionary time. And this is the lie I think that we've come up again and again against JT and Kyle as we're trying to advocate for this thing, this Christian education thing is people are like, well, everybody's, you know, they're really pressed on time. Everybody's got a lot going on. As though we have more demands on our time than people living during a time in history where just surviving through the winter Mm -hmm. (laughs) was the goal, you know? And so here we are living in this time where we have greater access to the scriptures than probably anyone at any other time in human history, and we probably spend less time in them. Uh, And so we all have discretionary time. It's just a question of where we're using it. And and one of the things that we want to do anytime we jump into a text like this is say, it will be worth your time. Right. Um, and, and, you know, raise the bar 
uh, on what you expect from yourself, you are going to reap benefits of this that you, you can't even anticipate. Right. But this is worth your time every bit as much as the other things, or even more so than many of the other things that you are devoting discretionary time to. So let's say somebody wants to... Go like, okay, I'm bought in. Yeah. I'm going to give some of my discretionary time. What are some quick tips you might give if somebody was going to follow along? So there's maybe somebody in the Bible class yeah. for First and Second Samuel or somebody who's going to be following along abroad or they're doing their own study on the historical books. What is one tip that you go, do this, and it will help you as you read the historical books? Uh, just one? Just one. Kyle, you're so stingy. Well... Reading repetitively. Okay. And people hear that, and they, a lot of people hear me say that, and they're like, so I'm just supposed to read it over and over forever. No, but you you do need to do it more than once, probably. I mean, maybe you're better at this than I am. I, I need to read it over and again multiple times because if I run too quickly to hear what someone has to say about it before I've just read through it, I don't have the familiarity I need to be able to judge between what one person and another person are saying. Yeah. So it is good to sit under teaching a uh, uh, sit under teaching over a passage or a book of the Bible, but it's so much better to do so when you have spent time just learning what the story says first. That's good. JT? That's a better answer than what I have, but I'll give my answer anyway. One of the things that was most helpful for me is I was so intimidated by some of the Old Testament literature is that I just didn't understand the Old Testament timeline. Yeah. So jumping straight into first and second Samuel just felt like, I feel like I'm jumping in to use your Forrest Gump analogy into that last scene already. And so I, uh, Graham Goldsworthy has a PDF. If you just Google Graham Goldsworthy Old Testament outline, it'll pop up on Google Images. We use that in the training program to help familiarize people with just where they are in the storyline as they pick up different texts. That's G R A E M E. Yeah, but I think if you're trying to Google, but if you misspell, it'll probably come up (laughs) still too. Yeah, but it is very helpful. It's helpful. It's not going to give you specific uh, information on First and Second Samuel, but it will situate you in the overall storyline. Here's where we are. That's right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would say uh, a map. Like most of your, Kyle, I love this answer. Most of your Bibles have them. I don't know if I've ever seen a Bible. Well, there, I guess there are Bibles without maps in the back, but most Bibles have maps yeah. in the back. And so just looking in the back or make, uh, making a photocopy of the map and just like tucking it in wherever you're reading so that you can use it as a bookmark so that whenever you're reading through a historical book and you think like, oh, they mentioned the name of this place and, or that David walked from here to there. And you're like, oh, I, that, that sounds like it just happened overnight. And it's mm-hmm. like, you look at it and you're like, this would have taken months, you know, mm-hmm. or weeks or days. And that helps affect the way you read and follow along with the story. Because unless you've been to all these places, which n- nobody has, um, then it's very tough to get a sense of your bearings. Hey, Kyle, you want to guess what's on the last page of the workbook we wrote for First Samuel? Is it a map? It's totally a map. You guys are so smart. Is, is the Bible a roadmap for your life, Kyle? Yeah, and Jesus <laughs> is my co-pilot. <laughs> For more information, you can look into the show notes in the podcast description. We'd be honored for you to leave us a podcast review on iTunes or wherever you find your podcast. You can find us online at trainingthechurch.com. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter by searching Knowing Faith. On our next episode, we're going to be looking at the doctrine of revelation. What does it mean that God has spoken? And is he still speaking? See you next time. Grace and peace.